Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. All right, we'll do a countdown and then we'll begin. Three, two, one. Good evening. I'm Liz Mitchell and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio show in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, events, impacting the African-American community. Good evening. I'm Clarence Boone. On January the 14th, 2021, the federal government executed Corey Johnson, Mm -hmm. a death row prisoner who likely was intellectually disabled without affording him judicial review to determine his eligibility for the death penalty. He was the fifth federal prisoner executed in the transition period between Donald Trump's defeat in the November 2020 presidential election and the scheduled inauguration of Joseph R. Biden on January 20, 2021. Bill Breeden, Minister Emeritus from Bloomington, Indiana, Unitarian Universalist Church was the minister to Corey Johnson and attended his execution. Bill shared that Corey Johnson was one of the most amazing human beings he had ever known. He had been a solitary confinement for 29 years without a visitor and was unable to read or write, but was very peaceful, caring man. In those 29 years of solitary, he was never written up by a guard for any infraction. Last month, Bill and Glenda, his lovely wife of more than 50 years, attended the premiere of a play in the Colorado State Prison outside of Denver. Inmates at the prison, who are part of a theater and dance program, wrote the play. They contacted Bill after seeing a news report about him attending Corey Johnson's execution. The last act of the play highlighted Bill's time with Corey. Bill, a longtime peace activist and a prison minister, is a, is a past recipient of the Bloomington, Indiana Human Rights Award. This is remarkable considering Bill's past. Bill professes to have overcome hatred and extreme prejudice to become the humble and loving individual he is today. And that's the truth. In reflecting on his life and transformation, he considered himself to be the luckiest guy on the planet, and he is willing to debate that with anyone. Now, we're not here to debate that with him tonight, but we are here to welcome (laughs) Bill Breeden as he talks about his life journey of self-discovery and his passion for helping the disenfranchised. Bill, welcome to Bring It On. I've been waiting this for waiting for this for a long time, Bill. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You, you, uh, your introduction makes me want to meet myself. <laughs> uh, Bill, I'm honored to be on here. I just hearing about a man being on or in solitary confinement for twenty nine years. That's inhumane. I don't know who's responsible for that, but they ought to be put in solitary confinement for that long that just we don't do that to a dog well that's true and you know as we're sitting here talking there's proud my guess is it hasn't changed there's seventy thousand people in solitary confinement in the united states right now 
every day of every year, uh, about 70,000 people in solitary. And uh, Leo Tolstoy wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is Within You. And he's in the last chapter, which is the chapter that made Mahatma Gandhi uh, a Mahatma and convinced him to use nonviolence. Tolstoy talked about going to St. Petersburg in 1893 and looking uh viewing an exhibition on the means of human torture. And in his book, he says, the number one means of human torture is solitary confinement. And uh, I've been in it a few times myself for very short periods, thank goodness. Uh, and that's what got me interested really in the first place of dealing with people with solitary. And that's been most of my prison ministry is, has been focused on people in solitary confinement. Well, now, Bill, is that here in America, or do they do that around the world? Is that well, is that the so-called American thing to do? Yeah, yeah, uh, no, it, it happens around the world, and and uh, but uh, it, America has used it uh, extensively. Obviously, seventy thousand people a day are are in solitary, and we've had, uh, well, I, I've visited people in solitary for. I started doing this in the early nineteen nineties, and uh, it's. Uh, there's a lot of insanity. There's a lot of, uh, uh, it's usually extremely noisy. When I used to visit the shoe down in uh, Carlisle, Indiana, at the Wabash Valley institutions where I started dealing with people in solitary, I would often have to, I was, I was kind of guilted into it by Carp Combs. You know, Dan Combs, yeah. was, uh, <laughs> he was doing a teaching student, uh, student teaching when he was getting his degree in, uh, in the prison and a young man, asked him to help him pass the GED. And he was in the SHU, which is the special housing unit. That's what solitary is called. And he called me one night. Uh, this was a long time ago. He said, Bill, he said, I, I'm just depressed. He said, I got called to do teach a GED to an 18, 19 year old kid in the, in the SHU. And, and I asked him how, why he wanted to get his GED. And the young man said, but I ought to take six months off my sentence if I get a GED. And he said, well, how long is your sentence? He said, 57 years. And uh, so Carp was just torn up by it. And he, and he told me, he said, you're a minister. He said, no one touches these guys except uh, the guards who put shackles and, and, uh, and handcuffs on them. And you're, you're a minister. You can go inside the shoe. You'll be able to touch them and through the cuff door, things like that. So I decided to go and I thought, you know, how many people could be in, in solitary in that one prison, over 10% of the prison uh, were in solitary at that time. I think of a, a phrase that's, that's been used through the years, and even sometimes out of disgust, when we hear something heinous that's gone on, we may utter, they need to lock them up and throw the key away. Yeah, that's true. And, and we and, you know this right here, and, and you know, sometimes when you really think of what that means, yeah. You can't help but have compassion on, on the human spirit, you know? Sure. Yeah. Corey Johnson, uh, as you said in the entrance, to, and, and I've said, is one of the most remarkable men I've ever met in my life. I, I've had the privilege of visiting with the Dalai Lama and with the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Uh, and I, I seriously say that I, I value my 30 hours or so with Corey as some of the most important hours of my life. And he, he was an amazing, amazing human being. I, uh, you know, my sense about solitary confinement, as I've said uh, in other places, is there's really two outcomes uh, to solitary confinement. One of them is insanity, and the other is discovering what it means to be a human being. And I think it's very rare that the second outcome is is uh, is real, but for Corey Johnson, it certainly was. He was an amazing person. You know, Bill, what's the point 
of being in solitary confinement, uh, first question, and why on death row for 29 years? Well, uh, many times, you know, we've got, uh, we've got people serving on death row for extended periods in a lot of prisons in our country. Um, you remember, I think when, I think it was when George Bush was in president, the second George Bush, uh, the Republican Senate wanted to cut the time of execution uh, that, uh, between conviction and execution. They wanted to cut it down to a maximum of two years. Well, the ones who have been exonerated over the mass set, last two decades, their average time they spent on uh, death row was seven years. So all of those people would be dead if they had not you know, been on long enough to get them exonerated, meaning they were innocent. Um, so yeah, solitary confinement. Uh, all the all the death rows I know are solitary confinement. They're, they're not allowed in the general population at all. And uh, who knows why? I you know that many of them have not done crimes any uh, more heinous than some of the ones in general population. And you know the fact is, Corey was guilty of of, uh, of killing seven people. Uh, he was uh, his mother abandoned him when he was twelve years old. He had some foster homes that were good and some were bad. As he said in his final words, uh, he said he didn't blame anybody else. Uh, he said, I was looking for shortcuts and, uh, and he said, I was stupid. And he said, I'm not the man I used to be. Uh, but he joined a gang in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, he couldn't read or write. And he, he could make numbers kind of read a uh, very, very poor writing skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he uh, joined a gang and he was six foot seven. And when you're six foot seven uh, and you're the biggest guy around, you become the enforcer. So he killed seven people in a gang war. And uh, as I told him, you know, if you'd have joined the army and gone to Iraq and killed seven Iraqi citizens, I could have got you a medal and a pardon, but you killed the wrong people. And uh, he was very remorseful. His last words were clear. He, uh, he dictated to me. They wouldn't let me read them. Uh, and I was very sad you know, I was not just sad, I was angry. We had quite an argument in the death chamber about it. But uh, the family, uh, the family of the victims were cheering like it was a touchdown when they announced oh, the starting. And I don't think they would have done that if they'd heard his words, because he said at the very beginning, first, I want you to remember these names. And he listed the names of the people he killed. And he said, I want to apologize to their families. He said, I would have done that a long time ago, but I didn't know how. Uh, all the people on the row, the other guys on the row called him the gentle giant. None of them had ever heard him raise his voice against anybody. He mopped the ranges at night. And uh, he was just one of the calmest, kindest men I've ever encountered in my life. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill, I'd like for you to tell the listening audience about uh, the young man you used to be. And then tell them what changed you. Something happened that changed you. But sure. how did you used to be? Because it seems like the man you used to be, there's a bunch of them like that out here now. Yeah. Well, that's true. I, I will say uh, in terms of my temperament and so forth, I, I was always, uh, in fact, I, I, my twin brother used to have to fight for me on the bus because I just couldn't figure it out. It wasn't that I was some kind of born saint or anything. It was just that my mind worked different and, when I'd get hit, I'd sit there and trying to figure out why I got hit. You know, I didn't know my psyche to hit back. And so I'd get hit again. And my twin brother would fight for me. And I remember as a teenager, I'd, 
cry myself to sleep because I didn't think I was going to be much of a man because I didn't know how to fight. But uh, but I was raised in southern Indiana in a sundown town uh, or near it, five miles east of Odin, Indiana. And uh, I was in what would have been, we called it the holiness tradition. It would be called probably evangelicalism today. Uh, it was a uh, very conservative. My, my mom and dad, uh, my dad was a singer. He sang in revivals at night and he worked in a gypsum plant in the day. And my mother and dad had three sets of twins and three singles. Pappy called the single spares, but <laughs> anyway, so, you know, that's just one of those things. And my twin brother and I were the youngest. By the time we were born, mom and dad both worked full time. And uh, we lived on a little 80 acre uh, part-time farm. We had a few fields that we farmed. And I grew up uh, really in a, in an area where people of color were never seen. It, it was a sundown town, but you didn't see them at daytime. You didn't see them when the sun was up. And uh, my family, I, although mom and, and pappy really weren't overt racist, you, they, I don't know if the N-word was ever, I never heard either one of them use it. My older brothers did from time, a couple of them from time to time. Uh, but it was racist in our DNA, you know, our DNA was racist. We <laughs> were raised in Southern Indiana. It's a Copperhead state. It's a Southern state. And, uh, it was racist. So I, I started my, my, my mother convinced us, everybody convinced my twin brother and I, we were identical and we'd go to these tent meetings where Pappy was singing and he'd make us sit on the front seats, you know, so he could watch us. And the preachers in the revivals would always point at us and say, look at these two boys down here. They may be the next John and Bona Fleming. And I'm sure you're thinking, who the hell was that? <laughs> well, John and Bona Fleming were two brothers in the second holiness movement of the 19th century, the revival days. And so they would, they kept telling us that's who we were supposed to be. And, and I think mom, uh, in, uh, you know, encouraged that. Uh, that I was supposed to be a minister and Daryl too, although Daryl didn't like preaching. He was, he would sing. He didn't have to preach. People come to the altar when he sang like Pappy, but uh, I always kind of did the preaching. I think mom had it in her mind all along that she didn't want her baby twin boys. We were the youngest to go into the military. We already had three sons. She had three sons in the military, one off the coast of Vietnam. And uh, so I think she instinctively knew that they would never take away the student minister, uh, minister students deferment. And they didn't. That's the deferment that they left in. It's because the army's always had preachers to go with them. You know, they had them when they went after the Indians. They had them when they, every time the army goes somewhere, they take preachers with them. In fact, ministers get the same tax break as military officers, the same category. So they didn't take that away. Our draft number was 15. And so we had a choice. We wanted to keep preaching. We were holding revivals on the weekends, uh, youth revivals at churches, every once in a while, a tent meeting. I met my wife at, a, at the Nazarene Church in Tell City, Indiana, and she stuck around for 53 years. But uh, I, uh, so we were preachers, singers and preachers. We had a gospel quartet, and we wanted to keep doing that. Actually, in the late 60s, we, we could pull down a couple hundred dollars every weekend, and that wasn't bad money in the late 60s, you know. But mom convinced me that you got to go to college. You got to go to college. And uh, so we did. And they didn't have the money to pay for it. Uh, I had to work full time. My brother worked part time for He just went for a year and decided it wasn't for him and came home. Uh, but uh, when I was 19 years old, the uh, 
at Christmas time. I was the only one left in the dorm. And uh, I worked at a grocery store, uh, Cooper Martin Supermarket at 3rd and Murfreesboro Road in Nashville, Tennessee. And I went to college up on the hill off of Murfreesboro Road, Trevecca College in those days. It's now a great university, actually. It's highly rated. But there was a college in those days. And just below that hill was what we call Black Bottom. And it was the slum of Nashville in, in that time. And my grocery store was right on the alley. Right across the alley was Black Bottom. And our store, uh, all our employees were white. 99% of our clientele were black. Uh, the guy that owned the supermarket was a big time gambler and owned car washes at the supermarket. And he was white. <laughs> so anyway, I was the youngest guy there in terms of seniority. And so I got all the, what we call the shit jobs, basically. I guess I can say it on WFHB. The, uh, and uh, the worst job in the store was we closed at one o'clock in the morning. And so between 12 and one, I was loading up grocery car, uh, carts in the back uh, in the storeroom of anything that would burn. We had a big incinerator out back, you know, it's before EPA and huge stack. And it was quite a fire when you got it going. I hated a job because I had to go out there at one o'clock in the morning, cross that alley to that incinerator on the edge of Black Bottom. And one night, it was on Christmas, uh, our, our dorm was empty. I went to work and, and uh, everybody's uh, happy about Christmas and all that. And I went out to uh, take this stuff out. I had about seven grocery carts full. And I'd race across the alley and dump it in the incinerator and race back, get the other. And we had a door on the back of our store that, you, you remember the old movie, King Kong? You guys are, you all know that movie. Mm -hmm. That gate they had where they put that big, well, that's the kind of door we had on the back. So it just, you got the impression that there was gorillas out there going to eat you, you know? It was a scary place. And so I ran out there and finally got to the last cart and dumped it in there. And I was trying to light a match. It's kind of windy. And this uh, voice behind me said, if you leave the match, I'll light a fire for you. And I turned around, it was a black woman. And she scared me to death. I figured there was at least 10 black guys behind her. And she had, I can see her to this day. She had a green dress, she had blue sneakers. And uh, I wish I knew her name. And I tried to chase her away. I said, get out of here. I know how to light a fire. And she said, uh, she said, well, you threw some cheese in there and I'd like to get it out. And uh, mind you, I came from a low income family, but we'd always been taught there are no hungry people in America. The only hungry people are, are lazy people. And of course, we didn't see homeless people in those days. We were low income, but we weren't poor. We had our food, we had our, our chickens and other things. And I just, we'd always been raised kind of to look down on anybody that would be hungry because they were obviously lazy. And I could tell this woman wasn't lazy. Uh, she said, uh, I told her, I said, you can't eat that cheese. It's bad. Now get out of here. And she said, the other boys let me do this and it helps me feed my children. And, uh, and I remember very clearly that, uh, I learned, I, uh, I memorized the gospel of Luke when I was 12 years old. I knew it very well. We won Bible contests. Of course, I preached from it. And I looked in her eyes. There was one bulb on the back of the store. You could see her face. And I looked in her eyes and I heard the, the words of Jesus. And as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And uh, I was stunned by the, by the fact, coming to the realization that here I was, a holiness Christian preacher boy, white. He thought he knew everything and didn't know anything and was a racist. And I go ahead. I, I want to jump in. Uh, mm -hmm. because yeah, anytime. No doubt we, we have listeners who are tuning in and they're wondering who in the world is telling 
this story <laughs> with all the candor that that we've heard you use <laughs> we want to at least introduce to our listeners that if you've just tuned in uh, we are having a conversation with bill breeden who's a minister emeritus from the bloomington indiana uu church or the unitarian universalist church uh, he's joining us to, to discuss his life journey of self-discovery and his passion for helping the disenfranchised and now he's in the midst of a story that is beginning to enlighten us as to how his heart is beginning to warm over and while he's going through a transformation. Now, one thing um, that I did want to, I just wanted to go quickly back to Corey Johnson, mm -hmm. uh, because after you share this, I'm going to ask you, did you see yourself in Corey Johnson? But if you can continue on with this part, and then at some point, uh, sure. I, I, I'd like for you to kind of relay that back to your experiences with Corey Johnson. So thank you, sure. Bill. Yeah, help me help me get around to that at any time. I got a good memory, but it's not very short anymore. I mean, it's pretty short. Uh, the uh, so I looked at this woman and uh, heard the teachings of Jesus. I heard the phrase of Jesus in my mind and uh, realized that that I really didn't know something's wrong with my religion. And you know, how could I be a racist and be a Christian? And how could I not know uh, instinctively, you know, that there are poor, there are hungry, and so forth. And I, I went back to the dorm that night and I took my religion very seriously. I, I still do, I guess, if it, you can call it a religion. Uh, and I went to the chapel and spent the whole night praying, trying to figure out who I was. And it began a process. I call her the black female Jesus. That's the only time in my life I know I met Jesus. And when if you meet Jesus, it changes your life. Help. I mean, <laughs> that's something to do. Uh, so she was Jesus to me. And then the following uh, summer, I started uh, serious studies uh, following year. I almost flunked out of school. I was working full time and sleeping most of the time. But a professor got me interested again. And uh, I went over to the Nashville, uh, to Vanderbilt University Library one day and just walking through the stacks looking for something I couldn't remember. I don't know what I was looking for, but I ran across, I ran across the dissertation of Martin Luther King Jr. And it was just kind of stunned. Right there it was. It was on uh, Paul Tillich's concept of, of love, of unconditional love. And I got it and read it. And all my life, I had been told, in fact, from the, from the pulpit of my church as a child, in night, when the Selma March happened, I remember the preacher saying, that man is nothing but a communist inward agitator. And when I read his dissertation, I said, if that's what the communist inward agitator is, that's what I want to be. And so, you know, it took a long time for me to, I went to school, went to seminary, both conservative uh, schools, had great professors, great teachers. Uh, also went to St. Paul, Paul School of Theology, a radical Methodist seminary in, in Kansas City at that time. And I just really trying to explore uh, theology and religion and trying to determine uh, what the truth was. And of course, I think it's always relative. It's relative to me. And uh, so I think that uh, that was, a, to me, that that meeting of Jesus in the alley changed my life forever. And, you know, there've been a lot of other people who have played a part in my, my being who I am, but no one played a bigger part than that woman. And you know, that's just grace, I guess. Um, I, I also, when doing some research on you, I saw that you were compiling some notes a, a while back, you compiled some notes and, and you were preparing a book entitled black female Jesus. Yeah, it's the Billy Pilgrim and the Black Female Jesus. That's that's my memoirs, and I've been working on them for several years. And 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 Glenda's probably listening. Uh, 
she's uh, insisting that I try to get something finished. And I, I kind of jokingly say, if I don't finish it before, my, before I die, she's going to kill me. But I think that uh, I hope to get that done. You know, I, I've written an awful lot. Uh, and then, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself a writer. When I write, I think it's fairly good. But, uh, you know, my daughter writes every day. She's a writer. And I need to get that kind of discipline. I, I'm, in some areas of my life, I'm not very disciplined. I'm afraid. <laughs> and, and you never, you never made, you never reconnected with this woman. I mean, no, I didn't. That one no. moment. No, wow. just that uh, you know, it was a, uh, it was 50, uh, at the most a ten minute exchange. You know, yeah. uh, I, I went back into the store, yeah. uh, stunned. I was just stunned. I, yeah. I was. I, it's the first person that I know as a child uh, from the time I was born. That was the first really uh underprivileged hungry mother i'd ever met you know I'd, I'd never seen a person that i knew was hungry and i knew her children were hungry and i knew i was a privileged white boy and yeah. uh, so she she radically changed my life and the the title of my memoir is billy pilgrim and black female jesus that following summer i read slaughterhouse five and by kurt vonnegut and uh so really uh up until that time, I was ashamed of being pacifist by nature. I didn't think it was manly. I didn't think I was going to be a man. After reading Slaughterhouse-Five, I was thankful that for some reason, I just got stuck with this thing <laughs> called uh, uh, as pacifism kind of fits my temperament. And so yeah. from that, from after I read that book, I said, yeah, that's, I want to be that. I want to be an agitator and a pacifist and, and, and a human being. Yeah, yeah. I am so glad that uh, Brazil's, you know, I'm a member of uh, Resilience Productions with Gladys Devane and Danielle Bruce. I was traveling uh, uh, around the country, around the world when uh, our company did uh, produced uh, sentences. Yes. So even though I did a little bit of that before I left, I was just <laughs> so sorry I wasn't here. Glad I was, had the opportunity to, to travel. Uh, Tell our listening audience about uh, sentences, uh, what, what our company produced. Well, uh, really, that's a, uh, I should get Glenda. I don't know if she's even in here now, but she, uh, she's been visiting a man who was on Indiana death row, a man named Philip Stroud. Who's, yes. He's now a member of the Unitarian Universal Church of Bloomington, Indiana, as are two other people on federal death row, my guy that I visit, and we've ordained another prison minister in our church who visits another man on federal death row. But she and Philip Stroud have been writing back and forth, and she visits visits him often uh, for many years. And so she, uh, uh, Gladys Devane, asked Glenda to share with her a lot of the writing that she had done about Philip and some of Philip's writing. And Gladys decided to make a play of it. And it was a wonderful play. We did three performances. They were sold out all three times. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got to act in it a little bit. I'm not a good actor, but I, but they let me show up. And uh, and I think it's it's extremely powerful play. Uh, yes. It was really done well. And Philip uh, uh, got a lot of satisfaction out of the fact that his words and his life has been, and he's been transformed too. You know, prison. When you anybody who goes to prison, unless you uh, unless you lose your mind, you find yourself. I mean, I really believe that. I've met so many people in prison. They don't need to be there that long, for God's sakes. In Europe, even for a bad murder. A, a, a long cry. A ten years is considered an extremely long cry. Hmm. Uh, the United States is really alone in its uh, in terms of uh, 
the first world nations in the way we do our prisons. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest industries we have and uh, it's, uh, it's obscene. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And we got a chance to, and, and I was able to participate in that. Uh, Philip mm-hmm. uh, invited us to come resilience. Right. And I got to do that twice. In fact, this year we uh, COVID prevented us from going back a third time. Mm-hmm. It was one of the most powerful yeah. moments of my life. Yes. Uh, to be there and the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. Uh, it was very moving to be there, to put on two plays for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd go back at any minute, yeah. anytime they're ever I, asked to go. Uh, yeah. uh, it was just that the first time going back, I go, oh, I, I don't know, didn't know what to expect. But I tell you what, it was uh, uh, powerful for me, yeah. uh, life-changing for me. And so happy I did it and would love to go back at any time. So I'm hoping that we we get invited back again. I'm sure we will will sometime next year. And, you know, you just have those moments that you think, oh, man, I'm so glad I did that. And uh, yeah, that was just. Yeah. You know, I, uh, my, this, I did, in fact, I'm going to visit the federal death row on this coming Sunday. I've, I've been visiting a man there for about 12, 13 years. I don't really remember how long, been a long time, but, uh, Every time I go, he says to me, oh, thank you for coming. Thank you. You know, he's, he's just praising me constantly. And I said, look, man, I thank you. I couldn't get in here if you hadn't asked yeah. me. So I said, you know, this is one. This is a gift to me. And yeah. uh, I think yeah. it is. When people go into uh, to meet people that we have locked up and sometimes for many, many years, what they do is they find human beings and it helps, helps us understand who we are. Yeah. Quick story about Indiana death row, which I think, which amplifies and, and it just shows you the humanness of these people. Uh, Philip Stroud went on death row when he was 20 years old, I think, very young man. And he had credits the men on the Indiana death row, which was in Michigan City, for saving his life. And uh, on the Indiana death row, and thankfully we haven't had an execution in a long, long time. In fact, I think Mitch Daniels, I was going to be in the execution chamber with a man who was had the mind of about a six-year-old and I spent a full day with him at his lawyer's request and then agreed to go with him to be executed. But I was within about an hour of the prison going to the execution when Mitch Daniels commuted his sentence for, for mental impairment. And I think that's the last, well, I don't think we've had one since then, but on Indiana death row, every time there is an execution, all the men on the row practice a four day word fast no one speaks for a word for four days. Now in prison, that's is unheard of. There's always somebody screaming and hollering in prison, you know, it's just there. They do a four-day word fest for the person who they executed. Glenda was visiting Philip Stroud one day and, and he asked her, I think, if she had seen the, the movie about Mr. Rogers' death after it came out after he died. And and Glenda said, Well, Mr. Rogers was a really good man. And Philip said, No, Glenda, Mr. Rogers was not a good man. He was a great man said he was the only father I ever had. And he said that when he was a child, his father and uncle were in prison and his aunt and his mom would want some time alone. He would, they would set the kids in front of the TV and put newspaper down and give them food. And they would go in the kitchen to talk and, and the kids would watch Mr. Rogers. And he, and Philip said, I remember he always had a word of the day, you know, this is a word for today. And he said, the word today is family. Can you say family? And Philip says, I remember us sitting there saying family. When Mr. Rogers died, all the men on Indiana death row 
observed a four-day word fast for Mr. Rogers. Wow. That kind of told me a whole lot about the caliber of people who end up on death row. I mean, some of them are, are criminally insane, uh, but having them in solitary confinement says more about us than it does about them. Absolutely. Uh, nationally, it says more about our nation than it, far more than it does about the 70,000 people who are in solitary. When, yeah. When you, when you uh, counsel people on death row, mm -hmm. have they ever described the process as far as psychologically what they've gone through say the first year, the second year, or the first week. Yeah, first I, month. yeah I don't know that they've done uh, that in, in that kind of a structured way. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Chad Fox, who I've been seeing for 13 years, uh, you know, he, he's tried to commit suicide three times because of solitary confinement. And I support his willingness and, want, and desire to do that. Uh, I, may, I might choose that same thing if I was in his shoes. Uh, strangely enough, they'll spend a lot of money to keep him alive so they can supposedly uh, kill him sometime. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, it really doesn't make any sense. The, uh, so I think what, uh, what happens is uh, the, the ones that I, uh, Corey Johnson, for instance, and Chad Fultz. Chad uh, got, uh, captured mice and trained them, and, and that's what's kept him sane, uh, although it's a tragic story <laughs> that I won't tell right now but, uh, about his mice. But the... Uh, the whole his he goes through times of severe paranoia uh, and and really loses at time. He was a fetal alcohol syndrome child, so he has frontal lobe damage, and uh, he goes back and forth. He, he's he's not Corey Johnson was by himself with no visitor for twenty nine years, and uh, I really was you know I've never met anybody like him uh, in any place I've visited. Uh, they called him the gentle giant on the road and, and uh, he was just an amazing human being. When you went to visit him, how much time were you allowed to to, to, to I, usually, I had about three hours at a time and I spent, in the last two weeks of his life, I spent uh, close to 30 hours with him, uh, the last three weeks, I guess. I, you know, we were there protesting every execution of the Murder Incorporated killing spree of Trump and Barr. And with three left, uh, I asked a lawyer friend of mine to find out if they all had ministers because a minister is the only person who can go in the death chamber with you. Found out three didn't. And luckily, Yusuf Nur, a wonderful guy with, in the Muslim community here in Bloomington and teaches at IU South Bend, I think. Uh, I, I called, a, I, I had uh, formerly, in the year before, when I think Trump and Barr executed 13 or 14 prisoners. And that last, the summer before the uh, the 2021, uh, they were executing, and I got a request from uh, a lawyer to find him a Sunni Muslim to be the minister of record for a Muslim who was going to be executed. And originally, the state uh, or the United States government had got a, a, a prison or police chaplain from Indianapolis to do it, who was a Sunni Muslim. But I've never met anybody in prison who wanted a police chaplain as a minister. I mean, I'm sure the police chaplain was a fine man and everything, but Guys in prison don't really want, as the man said when he came down and met him, he said, the guy was just too government. And so he didn't want him. Mm -hmm. So I got a message at our mosque on their answering machine and said, I'm looking for somebody who can serve as a minister of record for a Sunni Muslim. And Yusuf Nur called me and he came out and sat with me for about three hours one day. And, and I told him, I said, listen, if, he, if you take this on, he'll ask you to go to the 
the chamber with him. You need to know that. And I won't disrespect you at all if you feel like you can't do that. Yusuf did it. It was an unbelievable experience for him. After he came out, I met with him at one o'clock in the morning on Terre Haute. And he did a press conference, which was very powerful. He also said, I could never do this again. But yeah. he did it again. He did it again the next year when I called him and said, there's three people left. One of them's a Sunni Muslim. And Yusuf did it the second time. And perhaps the second time might have been a little more uh, less difficult just because you were aware of what's going to happen. But uh, I, I, uh, I got to know Corey really well. I, I read him the morning before he was executed. I read him The Velveteen Rabbit, which is one of my favorite books by Marjorie Williams. Uh, I think every parent needs it. Kids need to hear it. Adults need to hear it. One of the phrases in there is that when someone loves you for a long, long time, you become real and you can never be unreal again. And Corey told his family, uh, who had not been able to visit him for 29 years, we, we raised the money to bring them out from Brooklyn. And so they got to visit Corey in the last week of his life. And he wrote them and said, in his last words, he said, I want to thank my family because your love has made me real. Uh, but I, I don't, uh, go ahead, somebody. What, yeah, I just I, I was just going to ask you, and you answered that question. What do you say to somebody right before they die? Uh, you said you read a book, um, mm -hmm. and my question was, what do you say, or do you just listen? What do they say? Well, most of the time, I'm listening more than I'm speaking. Although you probably don't believe that. What's listening this radio station? Uh, I, you know, they say so many things. Uh, Corey, Corey was a. Uh, I shared with him the idea uh, when we began to talk about the fact that they were going to kill him. He, he didn't want a minister. When, he went into, when you go into a prison, you fill out a religious affiliation form, and that determines whether you get a minister, or, you know, whether somebody can visit you from that faith. And he put down no religion. And so when he got the death notice, uh, his lawyer, who's a wonderful man in Washington, D.C., uh, works for the largest law firm in the United States, and all he does is coordinate all their pro bono stuff. He said, it's the greatest job I could ever get as a lawyer. And he took Corey's case uh, for his own case. And when I found out that Corey didn't have a minister, I told my lawyer friend, tell his lawyer to call me, and, and Don called me. And I said, he told me that Corey had not had a visitor in 29 years. I said, Jesus, you know, what am I going to find? Am I going to find somebody eating flies or what? He said, you're going to meet one of the most remarkable men you've ever met in your life. And to give you an idea how this man who was, was, uh, had a learning disability, he was very bright, very, very bright. He could communicate, talk very well, probably hurt his case, really, in, when he's on trial, because he, he was just very bright. But he had never learned to read or write. He was dyslexic, for one thing. But he, uh, when he was sentenced to death in Richmond, Virginia, Somehow or another, uh, the judge, I'm sure, didn't, wasn't aware of it, but there were two classes from a black junior high, junior high school in Richmond who had come to observe court, you know, how they take them to court, kids, so they can see what the court's like. Right. I don't think a judge would have allowed them in there if he had known beforehand that they were going to witness a, a death sentence. But they did. And when he was convicted or condemned to death and, and uh, the judge told him that he would be going to death row to be executed. He asked Corey if he had anything he wanted to say. And Corey said, yes, I do. I want to talk to these children. And he turned around to the children and he said, I've done a lot of bad things. Don't follow my path. This is the way it ends. Don't follow my way. 
and there's TV footage of the TV crew outside the courtroom who interviewed the kids as they come out of the courtroom. And these young black children are saying, that man in there, he's black like me. He's black like us. We're going to listen to him. And, you know, to have a sense of, of your own humanity, to you've just been told you're going to be executed, and yet you turn around and talk to children. And so another thing that illustrates how the, the integrity of Corey Johnson is that when Don tried to get him to accept a minister, he said, I think you, it'll help you to have somebody in the room with you who is not wanting to kill you, Corey. He said, I think it'll help you. And he said, all you have to do, I've got somebody who'll do it. He said, you have to get that paper back from the chaplain, the religious, religious affiliation paper, and sign on it that you are a Unitarian Universalist. Philip says, I can't do that. He said, why? He said, well, it would be a lie. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> so the lawyer said, Jesus, Philip, they're, Corey, they're going to kill you. You can tell this little lie. So he finally did. And we were both very happy that he did. We really became close friends. Uh, it was wonderful. Go ahead. I'm, gonna, I'm going to jump in again, our final ID for this hour. If, if you've just tuned in, uh, you've been listening to a riveting uh, story, a story of uh, a journey of exploration, self-exploration by Bill Breeden, who's a minister emeritus from the Bloomington, Indiana uh, Unitarian Universalist Church. Uh, he's here to talk about that life journey and, and his interaction with those who are disenfranchised, those who are on death row, one in particular, Corey Johnson, Philip Stroud, and some others. Um, and as we sort of begin to kind of bring the conversation to an end, I, I want to ask you about your involvement with the local jails in Monroe County. Are you a familiar presence at the Monroe County Jail? If, uh, is that something you did previously? And then mm -hmm. up in Indianapolis, I think of Pendleton, I think of other places. What's your involvement in these areas? Uh, let me just add one quick thing with Corey. I, one of the things I did tell him about early on was we're talking about dying and i said Corey, in the african tradition the religious tradition you're not dead until you're forgotten in, in fact many families still set a place at their table for someone who's passed on to the other side but they're mm -hmm. not and so i said you're not dead until your name is forgotten and i said i'm going to do my damnedest to make sure your name is not forgotten and i thank you too for for being a part of that this is all a part of that my promise to Corey. As far as other jails, I, uh, I began my, my jail prison ministry work in the early 90s at Wabash Valley. I had a grant from the Unitarian Universalist, uh, one of the organizations that gave me a half-time salary to the prison ministry. And then I was half-time at the uh, UU Church as well. I think at first I was still driving truck. But uh, the, uh, I got involved in the Monroe County Jail uh, few years several years back and i don't remember the woman's name i, I wish i could think of it uh, she was uh, accused of killing her child and she was uh, actually teaching at iu at the time she was doing doctor uh, graduate studies and they arrested her in her classroom came in and took her out and she was from illinois originally she was so i got a call from her lawyer and he said we need help he said our client you know last week was teaching and now she's completely a blethering idiot. You know, she, she, she can't even talk to us. And I said, uh, is she in a solitary confinement? And she said, yes, she's in solitary. So I uh, went to the jail and uh, I'm, I wore my clerical collar and looked very clerical and so forth and said, I need to see uh, this woman. And she had been in a, in a solitary cell naked for three what? days. 
Yeah. This was several years back. Uh, and she was terribly paranoid, which solitary makes you, like I said, I've been in it uh, twice, uh, very short times. And first thing you encounter is paranoia. I mean, real paranoia. Uh, and she thought they, they were killing her, drugging her and so forth. And uh, I insisted that I visit her. Uh, I, with the, the jail commander at that time, uh, I don't care to share names or anything, but uh, he was uh, tried to keep me from doing so. And it just took a lot of, uh, I basically camped outside his office and wouldn't leave. And he finally agreed to let me see her. And then I convinced her basically, and I worked out with the jail commander that I could come to the jail at any hour at any day to check on her because she was so afraid they were going to kill her. And uh, she was exempt, uh, eventually exonerated, by the way. She went back to prison for a short time uh, and then was exonerated. But that was our solitary. So we got solitary cells in Monroe County Jail. They're, they're holding cells is what they're called. They're usually where you go when you first come in. Uh, and uh, we need to find a different way to do things. Uh, the first time I was in solitary was when I was on trial for that street sign <laughs> caper I did several years ago. And the, the, I went turned myself in because I was afraid I was going to get hurt. And uh, when I went in to serve my sentence uh, after my trial, the sheriff, who I've known since I was knee-high to a duck, uh, he said, Bill, they, they put me in a solitary cell when they took me to jail. And that night, I, I had hallucinations. I thought they were gassing me. I mean, literally, as I, I'm not a paranoid person. I, it's a solid steel cell with just a little slot in the door. And uh, so the next morning, he came in, the sheriff came in, and he said, Bill, we've got to I don't have any place to put you except cell block three. And we got three violent felons in there that fight all the time. He said, if you want to spend your week in jail right here, that's, that's, I don't want to put you in there. I said, you get me out of here. You put me in cell block three. I won't be a people. I do not want to be in here. And uh, that experience is part of what, uh, when Cart when Dan Combs called me, I re remembered that experience of that uh, 24 hours in solitary that I had. And I didn't want to do that. And, you know, I, I realized that's what it does to you. It, your first encounter with solitary confinement will drive. And all you have to do really to experience this, I think, is lock yourself in a bathroom and just lock it. Uh, well, actually have somebody else lock you in and see how long you want to stay in there. Uh, you know, you can have water in the bathroom and so forth. Uh, just try it out sometime in your own house. It won't take you long to get a little squirrely. Yeah, yeah. Is there... Um... Is there prison reform going on? I'd heard about it at one time, Bill, but I haven't heard any more about it. So is yeah. it politics? Is there money involved? Yeah. I'm sure yeah. it is. They always talk about money and yeah. politics. So it must be somebody's making a lot of money to keep things the way they are. They are. And I mean, you know, well, I'll just be honest. Capitalism can't uh, survive without war and prisons and poverty. That's what that's that's the three main bloodlines of capitalism. And uh, I, don't, I don't believe in it. I think it's a moral system, and I don't think there's any way to fix it except do away with it. Uh, so <laughs> now you know I'm a socialist. But anyway, the, as if you could guess. The, uh, so I, you know, I don't think, I think this country runs on the backs of the poor. The, the whole system is built on oppression. And uh, you know, I'm not a patriotic person. I'm thankful that I'm an American. I could have been born in worse places. Mm -hmm. But I got white skin you know that helped and uh, so you know i'm honest about who we are as americans and i think the uh, prison system is one of our uh, it's just an 
it is just a spotlight on the heart of capitalism. It really is. And uh, it's, it's something we have to change. The, uh, there, is, uh, there is hope. I met the director of the Colorado prison system is the most amazing, one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. He had his life changed by an Inuit uh, Alaskan native when he went to show them the video of their son who was killed by guards. And he went up there and he thought it was just going to be a couple of people. And it turned out the whole village was there and all their relatives. And he said, I literally thought I wasn't going to get out of there alive after showing this video. But he said, are you ready to see it? And this elder woman said, no, no, first we must pray. And she started praying and she prayed for the guards that killed her grandson. She prayed for this man who's brought this video and said, help us to realize he's our family too. And, and this man said, that changed my life. I had a cush job and all of a sudden I realized I had to do something. So in Colorado, you know, I just went out and viewed a play that these men produced uh, in their prison. They have a 24-hour radio station, by the way, that's run solely by prisoners, broadcast in every prison in Colorado, and you can get it on the world, world Wide Web. I listen to it occasionally. Uh, it is the most amazing uh, difference that this man says, Dean Williams is his name, he said, we're out to change corrections in this country. And he is doing, along with the Denver University Arts, Prison Arts Initiative, they've just done amazing things. He goes into the prisons and walks out in the yard and talks to prisoners. He's the director of the state corrections. You know, I've never heard of any, I've never met anybody quite like him in that kind of position. Luckily, I got to meet him after the play was over. We had a couple hours to talk at, 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 at a restaurant and we're going to stay in touch. He That's said he wants to get to know me better. And I said, I want to get to know you better. <laughs> I said, you're exception. Then that, then that guard has come a long way since the Attica prison rights. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It. That's come a long way. Because yeah. I was just reviewing that today because I did a documentary on Reverend Marvin Chandler, who was a negotiator uh, of that riot yeah. that, at that prison and, and talking to him. And that's been 50 years ago, 50 years ago this year. And he still tears up talking about what that day when that happened. So yeah. I'm glad we don't, I hopefully we'll never have anything like that again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we have places in the country where it could certainly happen at any time. Uh, but we do, I, you know, I, I was really pleased to meet this man and, and the, the whole atmosphere of that prison was very different than anyone I've ever been in. Mm -hmm. Different. And the, the play was actually in the housing unit of the prison, the maximum security prison. It was actually about two, little over two hours from Denver. I thought it was closer and we had to kind of mm -hmm. drive a maniac to get up there. But uh, it really was that the, we met with many of the prisoners. We, Glenda and I were allowed to stay after the crowd was ushered out of the housing unit to stay and meet with the cast and uh, talk with them a little bit. And it's, it's just an amazing, it's one of the most most powerful evenings of my life really. What is the most difficult challenge that prisoners face today? I think the most difficult challenge is the same thing that this nation uh, faces, and that is uh, the racist and just system that keeps them there. You know, uh, it's, it's just really, it has to be transformed eventually. You know, a, a very quick story about something that happened with our, at the Unitarian University Church. We have a Hope for Prisons Task Force. And uh, we sent some money, put some money in Philip Stroud's account. Somebody, Philip said he wanted to help the indigent prisoners. And uh, the prisoner up there in a wheelchair had never gotten a pair of shoes since he'd been in prison. He'd just wear these kind of plastic things that they give him. And Philip, we sent 
Philip the money to buy him a pair of shoes. Philip arranged for the shoes to be delivered to the dispensary at the health part. And then he arranged for a guard to come and get him and escort, uh, push this prisoner in his wheelchair to the dispensary. And when he got there, the nurse brought these brand new shoes out. Philip had got the guy's shoe size without telling him. And when, they gave, when she gave him those shoes, everybody in the room, the nurse, Philip, the guard and the prisoner getting the shoes were all crying. <sighs> Philip said, you have, what do you, what do you got to say? What do you got to say? And the man looked up and said, hope for prisoners. <laughs> oh, wow. oh, there are good things happening. Yeah. There are people who care. And yeah. I think America cares at the base and, you know, we're not bad people. We, we, we are driven to, to ignore the evil that's around us. And I think when we wake up, it changes our lives. Yeah. We have a few minutes left and, and there are two questions that I have. One, going back to the racism that just seems to um, um, continue on behind prison bars. I think mm-hmm. of Angola prison. Yeah. And I think of the yeah. horror stories. Um, um, there, there have been a lot of documentaries about Angola prison and just the atrocities that go on in, in some of these prisons. And then the other thing is, have you ever worked with an inmate that had his sentence commuted and you've been able to then talk with them on the other side. I mean, it just totally surprised everyone, but you were able to maybe have a conversation with them on the other side of all this. Yeah, I wasn't actually working with the man, but we met uh, one of the exonerated men off of uh, death row several years ago. Glenda and I, I'm trying to remember his name. He's a poet. He's got published books. I wish I could remember his name right now. Uh, but I did have wonderful meeting with him in Indianapolis many years ago. He's one of the earliest exoneration cases uh, that we mm-hmm. had. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name almost came back. But, uh, <laughs> but of course, I do, I do uh, run into uh, people who uh, have been incarcerated and are out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't run into any, I don't, ex- with the exception, I don't think I've actually run into any of them that I actually saw in prison. I'd like to. I think that would be fun uh, to do. The, uh, I think that, uh, you know, what I say to them is they changed my life as much or more than I changed theirs. Uh, again and again, that happened to me. Uh, I think people in prison, you know, they really honor a visit. <laughs> it's something gets them out of their cell. Uh, but they really honored the person coming in and it's it's pretty pretty it's really a gift here's a spiritual reference when i was in prison you came and visited yeah yeah that's right that's true think, think, and after hearing these stories for an hour the magnitude of that statement yeah it's just it, it's mind-blowing it is and i i really hope you know what i would hope is that people listening uh there are ways you can find uh, to write to prisoners uh, many times you know and, you know, I have some suggestions to people who are going to do that, that there's, there are some, there are risk involved when you deal with the prison population. Mm-hmm. They're far between, few and far between are the ones who would abuse you in that, in that relationship. I mean, right. it's very, very rare. Yeah. But I have different uh, safeguards and so forth that when we uh, get people to visit prisons, uh, we go through a little bit of uh, pre-training of saying some of the things to pay attention to mm-hmm. but you know my my i don't like to use numbers that i have no way to document but i would say the overwhelming numbers of people in prison in this in this country today overwhelming uh, majority of them would be a good neighbor if they could be 
And uh, I think that uh, what we have to find a way to do is uh, is get within the system and uh, change it. And, you know, Indiana's got a good constitution. It says our prison should not be uh, punitive, but uh, uh, there's another word they use. Uh, but our, our prisons are punitive. That's all they are these days. Yeah. And it's so rewarding. It's just so rewarding. And Bill, I appreciate you and I appreciate your wife. I love both of you. And I love the UU Church. You yeah, just do good work for the community. And I love that. They're wonderful people. I'm, I was honored to be a minister with them for a long time. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah. Bill, we, we usually get to this point and we usually use a phrase that says, well, time is up. Yeah. It's gonna be through them all of us. <laughs> given our conversation today, I'm gonna say, Bill, we want to have you back at some point. So yes. we just want to say our thanks to Bill Breeden, Minister Emeritus from the Bloomington, Indiana um, Unitarian Universalist Church. Uh, he was here to join us to discuss uh, his life journey of self-discovery and and his passion which which just emanated through this whole conversation about helping the disenfranchised. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure to share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Bring it on's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is Liz Mitchell. Show consultant and WFHB News Department director is Kate Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.